0: Anyways, hopefully you had a good Thanksgiving. Uh, Let's bow our heads and let's pray together. Lord God, thank you so much for this beautiful morning. What a beautiful day you've given us. And Lord, we thank you for just our time together. This precious time, both the young and the parents. We thank you, Lord God, that we can worship you, that you are worthy to be celebrated. And Lord, we pray that we would do that today. And Lord, as we get into your word, we pray your Holy Spirit would speak to us. You know our hearts. You know what we need to hear. So Lord, I do ask that your Holy Spirit would speak. We just thank you and lift this time to Jesus in your name. Amen. As I mentioned, I hope you enjoyed your Thanksgiving. Hope you enjoyed with family and you enjoyed that time together. Hopefully you enjoyed uh, the, the time and, and maybe some football. I enjoyed watching some football that day as well. But hopefully in the midst of all the eating and the prepping and the watching football, if you watched football, that you took some time to think about what you're thankful for. Hopefully you took some time to think about all the things that you, you're thankful to the Lord for. And uh, I know sometimes in the busyness of a year we can forget to think about all that we are thankful for. And uh, this year, you know, um, we had something especially to be thankful for, as, uh, you know, Jamie had her procedure uh, Tuesday, and so we had a very kind of mellow Thanksgiving, I would say. Uh, But we were very thankful the Lord took really good care of her, uh, took great care of her, and we're really uh, blessed about it. And, you know, she came out of the procedure in a great deal of pain and, You know, going into it, we're told that it's possible that she can go be released, discharged the same day, and so she was determined to go home that same day. But coming out of the surgery, the where it was, you know, they went in and it looks like they probably were near some nerves, and so coming out of the surgery, she was in a great deal of pain. So we weren't sure if she was going to get released that same day, but she was determined. And when I went up to see her, some of the nurses and stuff they're there, and they're telling me she's pretty determined to leave today. And I'm like, yeah, I know. That sounds like my wife, you know? So throughout the times, so there's like at least a five hour time where she had to lay still and recover. And throughout the time, she's like, let me just see. Let me just see. They're trying to prep the room for her to be, to be admitted. She's like, let me just see. Let me just see. Let me just see. And sure enough, come like uh, 10 o'clock or so, 9.30, 10 o'clock at night, she started to feel better. Now, not better in the sense of like we're actually feeling all better, but the pain level was down enough. So she was able to go. She's like, I want to go home. I want to be released. And so sure enough, they discharged her. So we went home around midnight uh, uh, that Tuesday. But uh, we were so thankful that God took care of her. The nurses, the medical staff were just so good to her. And uh, if you've ever been in a hospital, you had a procedure done or uh, a stay in the hospital, you understand the value of having good medical care. Right? When the staff is good, you feel better, right? And so it was a big blessing. And, and also, I just want to say on her behalf, she is so thankful. And we're, we are so thankful and appreciate all your prayers and concerns. I know many of you expressed, and you asked how she was doing and you've been praying for her. And I just want to let you know that she greatly appreciates uh, all the prayer and support and concern. And uh, it really makes a difference. And it, it really helps knowing that you have people praying for you. And so uh, on her behalf, we want to say thank you. And we're, we're just uh, really, really uh, thankful. You know, the Lord has shown his faithfulness to us. And in many ways, and many times, he's shown his faithfulness that he's been taking care of us. And he's shown how he's blessed us through others. Uh, and throughout our time in, in ministry, he has shown so many times how he's blessed us through other people. And, uh, you know, it kind of reminds me of the timing of everything, you know, talking about Thanksgiving and, and this past we're going to look at today. It reminded me a lot of what happened to us uh, some years ago. We we're in another church, and this is back when our older two were really young, before school age. And at that time I was a youth pastor, and we only had one car as a family, and it was this two-door Honda Accord. And so when you have two little ones, you have the... The seats, right? The little baby seats carriers. And so we would have it in the two door, we open the door and we had to squeeze through to, to get our car seats into it. And you know, dad's wrestling with those car seats are no fun, right? Mom seemed to like, boom, get it done, but I don't know, for some reason, you're like wrestling with those car seats. And so you had to squeeze through in the back seat and get two car seats together. And it was it was a little tiresome. And it was to the point where Jamie said, you know. Mike me and the kids we've been praying we've been praying that God would provide a minivan for us and she would pray with the kids specifically for a minivan now me you know we didn't have we didn't have a lot of money so I'm thinking how in the world are we going to afford a minivan we can barely afford the car we have now how are we going to afford a minivan But she's been praying. I'm like, okay, you know, whatever. You know, you're going to pray for a minivan and you're getting the kids to pray for a minivan. Okay. Well, one time, one night, one day, this couple who had some kids in our youth group invited our family over for dinner. I said, sure. So we went over and we had dinner. And I remember walking in and opening that front door and the first thing I see in their house was cats. Ran up the stairs. I think, oh no, I'm allergic to cats. I'm like deathly allergic to cats, more so than dogs. I'm like, oh no, how am I going to make it through this night? I don't know what this night's about, right? Like, am I in trouble? But now I have these cats. So we we go in, I didn't mention anything. We're We're enjoying dinner and we're eating and stuff. I'm managing to make it through dinner. And as the night is going, my eyes are starting to well up. Tears are running and like, it's, it's not even emotional, right? Eyes are itchy. I'm barely being able to breathe. I'm like, oh yeah, you know, telling them we're talking. Oh, that's great. You know, I'm, I'm feeling the itchiness. If you have allergies to pets, you understand what I'm going through. So we make it towards the end of dinner and they're telling us about their day. And they say, yeah, today, you know, we went car shopping. So oh, that's great. You know, I'm going car shopping. Yeah, we've been looking for a car, and we're getting a new car. Oh, that's wonderful. You know, God, you know, great. But then they said, we would like to give you our old car. And now we're, we're sitting there, and my eyes are like watering. I can barely breathe. So they're telling this news, and I'm like, oh, are you serious? That's that's such a blessing to us. I got to get out of your house, (laughs) you know? They're telling us about their car. And their car was an MPV, a minivan. And they're saying, you know, God has blessed us with this car so much. We would take it every year to the Mexico mission trips, load up the kids, and we would go. And we did so many things in this car. And God really blessed us with this car. And you know what? He laid it on our hearts to give it to you. And besides the teary eyes, I wanted a real cry, but I, you know, the, the allergies made it more significant, right? I said, oh, thank you. And then afterwards that night, you know, we we'd go off and go home. And Jamie reminds me, Mike, the Lord answered our prayers. Me and the kids have been praying for a minivan, and God provided a minivan. And we prayed and said, God, thank you so much. Lord, this is your car. May it be used for you and for your ministry. And I got to tell you, from that day and for the next however many years we had that car... I can't tell you how many youth, kids, and adults we piled into that car. How many different meetings we had and transport kids from here and there for the ministry. Some great memories of God using that car for his ministry. And how the Lord's faithfulness answered our prayers. That story, I was reminded of that story as I'm reflecting on this passage today. If you have your Bibles, turn to Mark chapter 11. Today, in our today's passage, Jesus teaches us some foundational principles to live by. Some principles that prepare us to live as followers of Jesus. And these principles that we're going to look at today ought to shape how we view and how we live our life. These are going to be some reminders that we need to constantly remind ourselves with and how to live our life. And it should flavor how we see our circumstances and how we live our life. As if you remember from last week, in last week's passage, if you remember, when Jesus arrives at the temple, or let me backtrack a little bit from where we left off last week, Jesus enters into Jerusalem, right? And he's riding on a donkey, fulfilling the prophetic picture of Zechariah, that the Messiah would come riding on a donkey. And with this image, Jesus declares who he is, that he is fulfilling the prophecy from Zechariah. But he's doing it, and it's very, just. Jesus is a smart guy. That's an understatement, right? He's a smart guy. He's declaring who he is, but he's doing it in a way that he can't be charged with anything. If the chief priests want to charge him with something, he's not saying a thing. But what's happening, the people are declaring praises. And this picture of Jesus coming in is he's saying, I'm fulfilling... That's not what he said. I am fulfilling... This prophecy, fulfilling what the prophet Zechariah said of the Messiah. And he goes in to the temple. And when he goes into the temple, he drives out the money changers. He drives out those who are selling and buying the animals for the sacrifices. He overturns the tables. He makes a statement. You have turned this house of worship and prayer to a marketplace. an issue of business, corrupt business. So the next morning after Jesus turns over the tables, we see that Jesus came upon the fig tree that he had cursed, or he had said to never produce fruit again. And sure enough, when Jesus and the disciples come upon that tree, the disciples say, look, the fig tree, it's withered from the root up. Let's see what Jesus responds with. Pick up a verse 20. And as they were passing by in the morning, they saw the fig tree withered from the roots up. And being reminded, Peter said to him, Rabbi, behold, the fig tree which you cursed has withered. And Jesus answered, saying to him, Have faith in God. Truly, I say to you, whoever says to the mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted them. Therefore, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they shall be granted to you. And whenever you stand praying, forgive If you have anything against anyone, so that your Father also who is in heaven may forgive you your transgressions. We'll stop there. So the next day, after overturning the tables, the disciples see the same fig tree withered, just as Jesus declared. And we looked at the significance of the fig tree last week, how the barren fig tree represents idolatrous Israel. And that the wicked priesthood that defamed the temple in the times of the prophets. So we look at the timing of what takes place, right? Jesus enters Jerusalem and into the temple he looks around. What happens next? The next morning, Jesus curses the fig tree. May no one ever eat fruit from you again. And then what happens? Jesus goes into the temple and he clears out the temple. All the money changes, all the people are doing business in the courtyard of the Gentiles. And then what happens the next morning? The fig tree is found withered, just as Jesus had declared. So if we are to understand the history of the symbolism of the fig tree, that it represents idolatrous Israel, unfaithful Israel, barren Israel, we can see the connection Jesus makes with the chief priests in the temple. If you look back in the Old Testament, when God condemns Israel, he speaks directly to the, to the priesthood, the wicked priesthood and the wicked prophets of those days. And so Jesus makes the connection, just as your forefathers were wicked and idolatrous and unfaithful, so have you become. So Jesus makes this connection. So when they go back and they see the picture in Matthew, Or before we get to Matthew, we see this, 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 this image of what takes place. But then Jesus goes on and says some things that you may read and say, like, what's the connection from what Jesus is about to say to what Jesus did with the fig tree and in the temple? What's that connection there? Well, in Matthew, he has the disciples asking, how did the fig tree wither at once? Right, so that was the question. How did the fig tree wither at once? So it's possible that Jesus' response is directly answering the disciples' question of why. The disciples wondered, how could this fig tree wither immediately? How could this have happened? So what's Jesus' response? He answers them directly, Right? He responds by speaking of faith, prayer, and forgiveness. And we're going to take a look at Jesus' response in this passage. What's the first thing Jesus says when they see the fig tree, right, that it withered? They say, how could this have happened? How does this fig tree wither all at once? Jesus' response, believe or have faith in God. Believe in God. Have faith in God. If there's one lesson the disciples should have learned, right? Throughout their time, throughout their time with Jesus, they ought to have learned the power of faith. They should, if there's a lesson that they were to have learned of, of all the things they experienced with Jesus, of all they have witnessed and heard, they should have learned the lesson of the power of faith in God, right? Think about all the things that they experienced and they saw. Think about from our time in Mark, from the paralytic man who was carried by the four men and lowered down, right? That they had the faith to, in Jesus that they, they came and lowered, G, uh, lowered the man down before Jesus. To the hemorrhaging woman who had faith to believe that if I just touched Jesus' cloak, his robe, I will be healed. To the Syrophoenician woman who had this demon-possessed child and she goes to Jesus and asks for him to intercede and deliver from the demon. To the blind Bartimaeus who was blind and had not seen Jesus before. But what does he do? He calls out for mercy. All these people Jesus responded to the faith of all these people who are desperate, but who believe that Jesus can do the impossible. The foundational principle to understand here, one, have faith in God. Have faith in God. God is worthy of your faith and trust. God is worthy to believe in. Jesus goes on and he says, Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea, and does not doubt in his heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. Interesting. We've seen Jesus respond to the faith of others by performing the miraculous for them, right? Right? We've also seen when a lack of faith has hindered people from experiencing the miraculous in their life. We've seen the disciples struggle with faith, right? We've seen the disciples struggle with doubt. The disciples feared for their life when they were in the storm in the boat, right? And Jesus said to them, Oh, ye have little faith, right? When Peter was walking on the water, what happened? He took his eyes off Jesus. He noticed all the things that are going on around him. What happened? He began to sink. He started to doubt. We saw that when the disciples was presented with this demon-possessed child, this son, and they lacked the faith to cast out the demon. So we've seen in these instances where faith, and no doubt come, go hand in hand. Faith in God and having no doubt go hand in hand. To have faith in God is to also not doubt God in our hearts. I don't know if your time in, in our study in Mark, have you been able to identify yourself as we go through Mark? Have you been able to put yourself in these situations and say, you know what? I can identify with these disciples. I don't know if you've been able to honestly kind of ask yourself about your own faith, your own trust in God, your own struggles with doubts. Whether or not do we pray in faith? Do we rely on the power of God? You know, this this passage is very challenging to me. Because how often do we say in our minds, I believe in God, but we doubt in our hearts. Can God really change circumstances? Can he really change me? Can he really change the things that I'm going through? Does God really know what's best for me? Can I really trust? Okay, I know God loves me and all, but can I trust God? God's good for me. Can I trust that at the end of the day that I will appreciate God's idea of good for me? For me personally, my doubt in God often surfaces when I say, God, I believe you can do the miraculous. You are a God of the miraculous. But I don't know if you're going to do it for me. God, you can do all things. But I don't know if you're going to do it for me in this instance. I don't know if you can relate to that. And I can be honest to say where my faith struggles, and shakes. It's not in who God is, but then I trick myself. I justify it. I do end up questioning God. Would you do it for me? Look what Jesus says to those who have faith in God and does not doubt in their heart. Whoever says to this mountain, be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in its heart, but believes that what he says is going to happen, it shall be granted him. What is Jesus saying? The impossible happens for those who believe and do not doubt in their heart. The impossible will happen for those who believe the Lord will do it. So you think, what are we to do with this? Does that mean after church we can all go out and you see those mountains up there and just pray, God, move it. No, that's not what he's saying, right? What is Jesus saying with this? First, he's saying, pray with faith in God. Pray with faith in God. Therefore I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they shall be granted you. Notice how Jesus emphasizes this truth in verses 23 to 24. Look at the parallel. Verse 23. Truly I say to you, whoever says to this mountain be taken up and cast into the sea and does not doubt in his heart but believes that, will, that what he says is going to happen it shall be granted him. So Jesus repeats it again in verse 24. Therefore, because of this truth, I say to you, all things for which you pray and ask, believe that you have received them and they shall be granted you. That's kind of heavy stuff. That sounds pretty good, right? Jesus speaks to the power of prayer when we have absolute faith. Believe that you have received them and it will be granted to you. Have faith in God because that's when we experience the miraculous. If God acts on behalf of those who believe in him and do not doubt in their hearts, what does Jesus say to do? Pray ask, and believe. It's interesting. These three verbs, pray, ask, and believe. The word believe is in the imperative. In other words, Jesus says, pray, ask, believe. Right? This imperative with emphasis. That's the key thing. You can pray, you can ask, but you better make sure you believe. Believe the Lord is a God who hears. Believe that God is a God who hears your desires and desires to bless and answer your prayers. Believe that when you pray, that he can carry it through. Believe that God is a God of miracles. God is a God of impossibilities. And he says, Believe you have already received it from the Lord and it will happen it's interesting I think we learn a lot about what we believe in God by our prayers ever thought about that we learn a lot about how we see God by how we pray how we pray what we pray for think about that what do you pray for How do you go about prayer? How do you approach prayer in your life? You think about when we talk to people, we talk to different people differently, right? Whether it's your friends, to your parents, to your teachers, to your pastors, maybe, I don't know, right? But when we want to ask for something, we ask people differently, right? You will ask your younger sibling to do something in a certain way, right? Go do this, get me something. If you were to ask your parents for something, hopefully you ask them a little bit differently. Depending on how bad you want it, depending upon how unlikely you're going to get it, right? Mommy, daddy, how was your day today? Good, can I have something, right? When you're going to your teacher, when you're going to ask them for something, you want extra credits. Who cares of how you talk to them the rest of the semester, but you need something? Hey, Mr. or Mrs. So and so, man, you're such a good teacher. Hey, you know what? Can I have some extra credit? We ask people, we talk to people differently based on who they are. But how do we pray to God? How do we go before the Lord when we want something? We read this passage, and perhaps our prayer list starts to grow. Maybe you're hearing this, like, wait a second, wait a second. If we just believe, God will give us whatever we want. If we believe that he's going to already do it, that's already done, it'll be granted to us. You may be thinking, perfect timing, it's Christmas time. Your Christmas list might have grown a little bit, right? You're thinking, wow, okay. I believe God is going to give me these things, right? But we need to understand what Jesus does not mean. What does Jesus not mean in this? This is not a formula for God to give us whatever we want. People misuse verses like this. People misuse these verses to perpetuate this prosperity gospel. The sense of, you know what? God just desires you to give you whatever you want. You just got to believe and claim it in faith and you'll have it. God desires you to be rich and wealthy and to have all those things. And they abuse verses like this. For them to justify praying for whatever they want. Well, what isn't this verse saying? We must understand all of Jesus's teaching so that we don't misuse what he's saying, right? God cares about what we pray for, how we pray, and why we pray to him. Matthew chapter 6 verse 19 Do not lay up for yourselves treasures upon earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay up for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in or steal. For where your treasure is, there your heart will be also. He goes on later in verse 25. But seek first his kingdom and his righteousness, And all these things shall be added to you. Therefore, do not be anxious for tomorrow, for tomorrow will care for itself. Each day has enough trouble of its own. Jesus says to not focus on your earthly treasures, but rather treasures in heaven the eternal reward for what God will give to you. He says, seek first his kingdom. And his righteousness. And then what will happen? All these things will be given to you. What are all these things in the previous verses? All the things you need. The things that you get anxious about because of your need. Not your, all your wants. But your need. Remember the previous lessons we've seen in Mark. How we're not to value the pursuit of riches. Riches. We're not to be about boosting our greatness here on earth. Remember how Jesus corrects the disciples. They desire to, "How how can I be great? I want greatness. And Jesus corrects them. What? How does he correct them? You need to learn to be a servant of all. We read about the rich young ruler, right? That man had everything you could have wanted. He had much wealth. But yet he lacked one thing. True devotion to God that leads to eternal life. His wealth was a stumbling block. And isn't it true that it's difficult for us to be content, isn't it? Isn't it difficult to be content? How many of you looked at Black Friday sales? How many of you look for a phone that you really don't need to be replaced, but it's a modern, it's the new models coming out, right? Or the new computer, you need an upgrade. You need something. It's hard for us to stay content. But we need to pay attention to what we're praying for, right? And why we are praying for it. Look what what John says in 14. John 14, 13 to 14. And whatever you ask in my name, Jesus speaking, that will I do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son, if you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. He goes on in chapter 15. Jesus says, If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it shall be done for you. By this is my Father glorified that you bear much fruit and so prove to be my disciples. See, we can't just end it on what we read in Mark here, right? We need to consider in whose name do we pray for the things that we pray for? Who gets the glory for the things that we pray for? If God was to give us the desires of our hearts, who gets praised for that? For what cause do we pray for all the things we pray for? Are we abiding with Jesus? Are we abiding in his word? Or are we just expecting him to give us anything we want? Are we seeking our own glory in what we pray for? Or are we seeking God's glory in all the things that we pray for? So we need to consider not only what we're praying for, but why we're praying for it, right? I like what James James says, James chapter 4, talking about what we ask for. Verse 1. What is the source of quarrels and conflicts among you? Is not the source your pleasures that wage wage war in your members? You lust and do not have, so you commit murder. And you are envious and cannot obtain, so you fight and quarrel. You do not have because you do not ask. You ask and do not receive because you ask with wrong motives." so that you may spend it on your pleasures. You adulteresses, do you not know that friendship with the world is hostility toward God? Therefore, whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Notice what James says here. We sin because of the pursuit of pleasures that war within us. The desires that we have oh, I want this so bad. I got to have this. I have to do this. That all those things that wage war in us, those pleasures that's going to lead us into sin. He says, our lustful desires conflict, especially when it conflicts with other people's desires. He says, why do you quarrel among us? Why do you fight? Because you both desire the same things or you desire things and you conflict. There's conflict within you. And then he goes on to say, We do not have because you don't ask. Right? You want all these things. Maybe you complain to God about what you don't have. He says, you don't have because you don't ask. How many times when we want something, we say, you know what? I'm going to go get it myself. I'm going to do it my way. I'm going to get it. I'm going to seize it. But then James also goes, you don't ask, or when you do ask, you don't receive. Why? Because you have wrong motives. You're selfish. You say you ask God for something, but you're asking with a heart that's selfish. You have wrong motives. So James warns us of this. It made me think about why do we get so upset when God doesn't give us what we want? We question God, does God, do you really know what's best for me? Because I really want this. I really need this. And we're so quick to question God's intentions. As if God doesn't know what's good for us, can you imagine the number of things that God helped us not have that we wanted, that would have that kept us out of trouble. I can't imagine how many times God did not give the desires of my heart because He knew if I, He gave it to me, I'd be in trouble. I would have been in trouble. But yet we so easy to mis, distrust God. Parents, if you give your kids whatever they want when they want it. If we do that as parents, you know what we're doing? We're conditioning our kids to expect this from God. I believe that. If we treat parenting to our kids as whatever they want, oh, let's just give them whatever they want. You don't like this? Oh, Johnny, okay. Let me just give you whatever you want. Then they will be conditioned to see God that way. God, why aren't you giving me what I want when I want it? You must not love me. You must not care. James warns us with a critical truth. Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. Now this sounds like a harsh thing to say, doesn't it? Whoever wishes to be a friend of the world makes himself an enemy of God. But we need to understand the world's interest is in contradiction in contrast to God's interests. The world's desires is in contradiction to God's desires. And at some point, if you're, you're like, I want to be friends with everybody. I want to be friends with the world. I want to I make sure I don't, I don't cause problems with anybody. Somewhere down the line, you will be in conflict with people. If you're trying to be friends with everybody and, and be in agreement with everybody, there's going to be a rub. There's going to be a conflict with your faith there's a conflict with God's interests. And you think, well, does this mean, Pastor Mike, that we can't ever be friends with the unbelievers? Does this mean that we can't ever, like, do good things with other people? I said, no, 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 that's not it. We have to be conscious. We have to be aware. We have to be in consideration of others. We have to represent Christ's love to, to people, Right? But it changes how we see why we are friends with unbelievers, why we associate, why we engage with the unbelieving world. So that they may know Jesus. That they may experience the love of Christ. That they may see how much God loves, how God forgives, how God redeems people. That's why we should be engaged with unbelievers if we're so. It's not to just like be friends and be like one of them but so that we can show who Christ is. Let me wrap up with this. What's the takeaway with this passage here? We can't forget the context of all that Jesus is saying to the disciples here in this, in this situation, right? The fig tree becomes a symbol of judgment against Israel, Jerusalem, and the temple. And the fig tree becomes an immediate illustration of the power of faith in God. The context isn't Jesus telling the disciples, this is how you get whatever you want. That's not the context. That's not the point of what Jesus is saying. Remember, Jesus is preparing the disciples for his suffering. He's preparing them for their ministry. And remember, these are the same men who struggled with faith, struggled with believing in the impossible, so he uses this moment to sh- visually again show the power of faith. Because one day, their weakness is going to be their strength. They struggle with faith and doubt, but soon that will be their strength. Because in faith, they will go out into the world and preach the gospel of Christ. What they struggle with with doubt they would now believe and pray and ask God in faith in the name of Jesus, in the name of his kingdom. It wasn't for their glory. It was for the glory of God. So Jesus reminds us, and I'll close with this. One, believe in God. Two, pray with faith in God. Believe in God. Pray with faith in God. We'll look at the third part of what Jesus' response is about forgiveness next time in a couple weeks. But believe God wants to hear our prayers. Believe God wants to bless us. Believe that God can do the impossible. But the third thing, pray with faith in God with the proper perspective. I challenge us to be less self-centered about our prayers. I challenge us to be less about ourselves when we pray to God. The things that we pray for, what is our motives? God, can you be glorified in what I'm giving to you, what I'm asking of you? That minivan served us well. And I believed served the Lord well. It drove a whole bunch of miles. I'm so thankful for that. And I pray that we would have the proper perspective that when we pray in faith and believe that God can do the impossible, it's not for our glory. It's for his, for his kingdom, for his ministry, for his work in us, that his will will be done. Let's bow our heads and let's pray. Lord God, you are a God of the impossible, the miraculous. There's things that you do that we don't even see or realize that we should truly be thankful for. And Lord, it's so easy to get caught up in ourselves and all the things that we want, things we pray for and ask for. But Lord, may our hearts say, Lord, may your will be done. In your name, may you be glorified. May my prayers reflect my faith in you, my trust in you. We thank you, Lord God, for you truly are good. In Jesus' name, amen. Let's stand and let's worship together.